You are listening to a Crosspoint Peachtree City podcast. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Cross Point City, uh, Cross Point Peachtree City uh, Church. It's a joy to be here. It's an honor to be here with you all uh, this morning. I just want to let you guys know Jamie has been such a blessing to me. I've known him for a few years now in our Acts 29 cohorts uh, once a month, so several times a year. Uh, he has just been a blessing to us and to several men uh, in Georgia and also even around the world as he continues to encourage us through prayers and uh, through even his preaching and his teaching. So um, you all have a, an amazing man of God here, and his family is an encouragement to my family as well. I also have a co-worker in faith with me here this morning, Prabhu Dwaram. Um, y'all, let me... He, uh, he has an ankle injury, and we had to walk around for two miles uh, Friday uh, to do some, some work, and man, he was just so faithful. He's such a trooper, and so, so glad he's up here with me. Um, we've known each other for a few years now, and uh, we're planting the church together with another family, and so it's just great. So if you have a chance to, to hang around a little bit, ask him a few questions about what's going on in America's Georgia, uh, I'm pretty sure he would love to share with, with you some stories. Um, so we are continuing the series in Ruth in chapter 3, so you can go ahead and, and turn uh, your Bibles to that, um, or if you're using any uh, electric devices, you can do that. Um, if you don't have a Bible, probably raise your hand and someone will bring you one and you could probably even take that home with you uh, as we look into this chapter. This chapter is the part of the story we're going to find where things really begin to unfold. Chapter 3, we see all the anguish, all the trials, all the tribulations, all the ruin that has taken place because of Israel's rebellion against God and his kingdom and his word and his works. Uh, we see that this is, is, is a horrible place and a horrible time in Israel's life, and yet we're going to begin to see light and life come through in this part of the story. It's like a piece of a puzzle. Uh, if you think about the book of Ruth, it's, it's one piece to a larger part of the story and this narrative that helps us connect the dots that we have an unstoppable God who will accomplish his work throughout all of history, whether it's good or evil, right or wrong, God is unstoppable. Unstoppable, and his purposes will come to pass. And so we get a chance to see that together in this chapter. Uh, as Jamie and even James have shared over the last few weeks, uh, the backdrop of Ruth is a very dark place. Um, and it's because they, they are working through this idea of trying to remove authority in their lives as during, during the time of Judges, where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, and uh, they, they wanted no king. Uh, they had no king. They wanted to embrace autonomy. And like any other time in history, uh, in order to have autonomy, you must remove God in the minds and the hearts of people. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins says in his book, The God Delusion, he says this, we are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one God further. So this is the idea of Israel. Israel has forsaken all other gods. They only have one. And the idea is, is can we just get rid of one more, one more authority in our lives so that we can be autonomous. And a fitting declaration for such a time as Ruth, as Dawkins and Israel are calling for, in a sense, a rejection of a divine ruler. Uh, and what does this theological statement 
uh, lead us into? Well, we see another uh, author in our day and time give us a glimpse into that outcome when he says this, for those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command nor a faith or uh, a, a dictum. I am, I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational systems. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds of life and our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. This is the outcome of autonomy. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. I talk to my kids all the time about that. We, our, my kids struggle because they want to do what they want to do when they want to do it, right? That is the the plight of autonomy, and it leads us to this. And so we're in this world now, uh, but we also see this is happening in the book of Ruth. But the great thing is, is that Ruth gives us a glimpse of hope in a time of assault on the existence and the goodness of God. Another puzzle piece, again, laid down in the tapestry of history so that we may cling to it a glorious rest in the midst of ruin. So the question that I want to ask today and answer through this chapter is, where is God's hand at work? Amid the ruin and the rebellion of God's people, where is God's hand at work? I ask this question personally all the time. Uh, not when I get stopped at necessarily a light and it goes red and I have to wait a few minutes. That's not what we're talking about. And that's not what Ruth is talking about. They're talking about a, a time where things are very, very difficult. And so, when, so, for example, when my family had our miscarriages, that was a very difficult time. And we were asking, where is God? Where is God at work? Uh, if you were there during uh, situations like 9-11, you would say, where is God at work? When you think about COVID, you would say, where is God at work? And so, again, we get to step into this text in a posture that we understand. Where is God working? In the midst of all of this ruin, where is God at work? And so the writer of Ruth is sharing this story. And honestly, if we don't ever get to chapter 4, this, pro- this story probably won't make any sense to anyone. Uh, the writer, as he was speaking these and, and writing this out, maybe even during the time of David when people uh, were there, or even during the New Testament when Jesus uh, was, uh, was there, what we see is we see the story of Ruth and Boaz, and we're like, okay, sounds great. We see these people, and they're doing good things, and that's a great thing. But then you get to chapter 4, and you see that they had a child, and his name was Obed, and you're like, okay, who is Obed? And you're like, but then he had a child, and his name was Jesse. And you're like, oh, I think I know a, a man by the name of Jesse. And then it says, and then Jesse had a son named David. And then all of a sudden it clicks. You're like, oh, Ruth and Boaz is the connection point in this time in history from Abraham to Jesus. Like Ruth and Boaz are important because God is continuing his work. And if Ruth and Boaz are not a part of the story, we don't get David. And if we don't get David, we don't get Jesus. And so this is God at work. As we read this story, there's hope because we see this. And so we're going to go ahead and step into this chapter, and we're going to see God at work in two ways, right? We're going to talk about the existence of God. We're going to be talking about the goodness of God. But where is God at work? Number one, we see God at work in the law. We're going to see this in verse 2, verse 9, and verse 12. So let's step into it. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 3, then 9, then 12 together. Then it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, whose young women you were? See, 
He is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down and, uh, and anoint yourself. Go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Verse 9, he, being Boaz, said, who are you? And she, being Ruth, said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And then Boaz continues in verse 12 and 13, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let, it, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So in verses uh, 2, verses 9, and verses 12, what we recognize is Naomi sees a need for Ruth. She says, you need rest. And what does Naomi lean into? She says, well, we have a kinsman. We have a, a relative that can be a part of your rest. What is she leaning into? Where would she get this idea from? Go to, go to your kinsman. Go to your relative. And then we also see in Ruth in verse 9, she says, spread your wings over, which is she's considering this idea of uh, having a completion, not just for Ruth, but also for Naomi. To Will you come? Will, you, uh, will we be in a covenant together so that you can redeem us? And then in verse 12, uh, Boaz is speaking of a redeemer. Hey, listen, there's someone before me, but... If he doesn't, then I will. Where does all this come from? We just, we just automatically assume that, yeah, there's a kinsman redeemer, but that actually comes from the law of God. And what I want to realize and help us to realize is that the law was given to reveal God's kindness and his goodness and his nature and our need for salvation. So this idea is that Boaz's kindness was actually God's kindness, when we look and we say, what about the goodness and the existence of God? All they were leaning into was actually the law. They were saying, look at the law and look at God's kindness. In fact, this was kind of a part of Boaz's whole life. If you look at a few things, Boaz's rules came from the law. You guys were in Ruth chapter 2 verse 8 where Boaz was being faithful to God's command to make sure that the, the poor and the sojourner were able to get food. You remember that in Ruth chapter 2? He was doing that. Was, it, was he doing that because he's a nice guy and a kind man and he just had this great idea? No, actually, he was actually following the law. And the law told him in Leviticus 23, verse 22, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Here's the indicative. I am the Lord your God. Why would Boaz do that? Because God is Lord. And God said, this is my kindness to the sojourner. This is my kindness to the poor. And if you follow that, you're showing my kindness to the poor. You're showing my uh, love for the sojourner in the poor. Even Boaz's practice is on the threshing floor, the statues, all that's being laid out in verse 2 and verse 6 where he's going. This practice is a part of God's command to do things, to, to harvest and to do it at the threshing floor. So this is God's idea. The harvest at this time, what it's symbolizing is celebration, right? Remember, they've been in ruin for a long time. They had a great harvest, and so they're celebrating it's why he's eating and drinking. He's celebrating a good time. This is signs of a good year that God is giving his people, and specifically Boaz here. So not only is Bo Boaz's rules come from the law and his practices come from the law, but even his promises of a kinsman redeemer come from the law. He's following what God has told him to do. And again, we see this 
in, uh, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25. It says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then it is his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. And so he's leaning into that. Where he gets this idea is not, I'm just a really great guy and I have a really great idea. He's saying, Leviticus tells me if I want to follow the law, that there, the kindness is, is that there is going to be a redeemer for you. And I'm going to make sure that that takes place. So Boaz's kindness was actually God's kindness uh, to Ruth and ultimately to even Boaz. So again, the law is God's nature, but it's also a mirror to show our own brokenness and ruin. Because we know that God keeps all of his law and all of his rule. Why? Because this is who he is. So when we look at the law, we see God's beauty, his strength, his joy, his, his purpose, all of these things we get to see. And then it, like a mirror, it reflects and goes, well, that's not what I do every day, all day. That's not how I think. That's not how I act. And so therefore, it, we need, obviously, salvation. We need a redeemer to come and to do this for us. But we see that God keeps all of these things now, when we think about the law, sometimes as uh, uh, those that I've talked with, but whether atheist or agnostic, they see the law of God as restrictive. They see it as a digression from any good. Again, the presupposition of what good and evil is is always there as well. But they think, no, this is bad. The law is bad. And religious people, right, people that are from different faiths, they tend to see the means of a law or statue as a means for uh, justification, maybe steps to their own uh, having peace with God, or at best, that they would actually become gods themselves. But this is not why the law has been given to us. Uh, it's, it's not digressive. It's not evil. It's actually good. We know that because Paul tells us that it's good in Romans chapter 7, verse 11 uh, through 13, where he says, For sin, seizing its opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment, put me to death. So that's a good thing that we recognize that. And then it says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He's saying that it's a good thing. The law of God is good. Why? Because it reflects his nature. He cares about the poor. He cares about the sojourner. He cares about redeeming his people. That is a beautiful thing, and we're getting to see this throughout the story. God is doing this great work through the law uh, in this context. And then it says, we also see again in Galatians chapter 3, again, this is Paul speaking. So what does it do? It, it shows us God's nature, but then it shows us our need for salvation. And then in Galatians 3.24, it says, So the law became our guardian to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified not by works, but by faith. So we need faith, but the work of God is good. And that's what we're seeing right now. God is at work in the law right here. So he's not, he's not uh, distant from this scenario is what I'm saying. God's law, Boaz is doing what God told him to do because God loves Ruth. Because God loves the sojourner. And he's doing that through a man who is being obedient and we get to see how good God really is. So we can say, wow, that's amazing. That's good. God is good. So where is the law? We, again, we see it in the context of the law is where God's hand is at work. The second place that we can also see God's hand at work in the text is through a redeemer. It's through a redeemer. So I'm going to read verses 13 through 18 together. This is, again, Boaz speaking right here, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning, 
So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before no one could recognize another. And he said, Let it be known that the woman came to the threshing, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And then she told uh, she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will set her, settle the matter today. So this is the moment of faith for Ruth and Naomi, because these are the last words that we will, we will hear them utter. Everything else is just kind of commentary on what takes place, but this is the last time you hear them speaking in this narrative. And so this idea of faith, this idea of uh, we are waiting to hear uh, from this Redeemer. And we can pull a lot from uh, this passage. When we talk about uh, some, some of the moral character of these people, their, maybe their faithful choices, uh, all of them, honestly. Uh, so for example, with Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, they all had hesed for one another, which is the meaning of a loving attachment. It's the deepest attachment that you could ever experience. This idea of hesed is a loving attachment that we should emulate uh, as believers. Now, again, we may not know if you understand a little bit of the story. It kind of feels a little sketchy because Naomi's asking her to do something at late at night at the threshing floor. And if you know anything about the history of the threshing floor, again, it's a time of celebration. But there is some things like prostitution that does take place. And so she's telling her, hey, get all dressed, get all ready, go in the middle of the night while he's sleeping, come uncover his, his legs. Um, and then, we're, you know, you guys are going to have this conversation. We'll see what happens. Do what he says after that. Now, that sounds kind of... Uh, skittish, but in the reality, we see a few things. Number one, we see that Ruth and Boaz, in this context, has never, it's, they, they've never had a problem with integrity in the context. So we already see in Ruth, for example, one of the things that Boaz speaks of Ruth in verse 11, he says that you are a woman that everyone knows about in town in a good way. That's actually referring to something like Proverbs 31. So what Boaz is saying is, is she's like a Proverbs 31 woman. Her work ethic, her love for people, her love uh, for uh, God is something to emulate. And so we see that. So we see how Bo speaks of Ruth. Boaz speaks of Ruth. Um, we also see, for example, uh, again, Boaz's care for his men, the poor, his determination to settle the matter quickly. I mean, there, there's some leadership lessons in these characters. Absolutely. Uh, the main thing is, is that in this chapter, Boaz's actions were part of the preserving power that God was redeeming us all in, in the act, uh, when everyone else did what was right in their own eyes. He was doing an amazing thing. And so we could see Boaz as a typology in one sense of Christ, right? He is, Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And so we can kind of look at this story and see, okay, this is, this is a man who meets the needy, uh, who comes to the threshing floor uh, and says, hey, listen, I can be your kingsman redeemer. Um, he sees her. Listen, he could take, potentially he could take advantage of her, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. He doesn't do that. Um, and so they have this has said for one another. They don't have this romantic moment. This, this moment is not about romance. It's about has said. Naomi loves Ruth. Ruth loves Naomi because she says, spread your wings over all of us. 
Ruth loves Naomi, and Boaz loves Ruth and Naomi. He wants to take them all. This is a, a moment of true hesed and love for one another. So we see that taking place. We also see, in, in many senses, we could take some of the references to, so for example, when he says, listen, I'm going to go settle the matter today, right? And then he gives her six barley loaves, which is way more than she needs. In fact, it says that he had to put it on her, which means that she could not carry it. She couldn't just pick it up. She had to do it in such a way that he just had to throw it on. That's a lot. Six barley loaves is a lot of resources. And what he was saying in, in that sense was, look, I'm going to go handle the matter, but I'm going to make sure you have more than enough until I return. Does that not sound like Christ? Right? I'm going to redeem you. We already know that it's already happened through the cross, through the resurrection. We know the ascension. God is coming back. Jesus says, I'm coming back for you. I'm going to give you a few things. I'm going to give you the word of God. I'm going to give you the spirit of God. More than enough, what does uh, first, Second Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says? That he's giving us everything we need for life and godliness. We're not left to ourselves and to our own devices. We have more than enough. And so we can see in this context that Boaz is a typology of Christ. That the things that he's doing, we can lean into and say, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And we should pursue that and pursue Christ because these are the things that he does. But like the pieces of a puzzle in this chapter, the book shows us that God is raising up men and women to enact his purposes and promises in the world. That's what he's doing. Throughout all of history, even in the most difficult of circumstances, even in the midst of this story, God is at work. And as I mentioned before, think about it this way. If Ruth starves, we get no David. If Boaz is a jerk, we get no David. This is the context. This is the larger narrative. God is working through these people to accomplish his purposes so that they would see that David would come in the lineage and so that Jesus would come through the line of David. This has to happen. And God, in the midst of ruin, says, I am going to redeem my people and I'm going to use these men and women to do that very thing. So redemption, despite our rebellion, is a beautiful picture at the threshing floor. That's what's happening. So that's wow number one, that God would redeem his people. Here's wow number two. God's plan includes foreigners and outcasts. Listen, he didn't just, in this moment, listen, in this moment with Ruth as a, as a Moabite, he's not just saying, I want to redeem Israel. He's saying, I want to redeem all nations because he chooses a Moabite woman to come into the lineage of Christ. This is a beautiful picture of what Christ is doing. In fact, Malachi chapter 1 verse 11 says this very thing. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Not just the nation of Israel, but among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The wow too is that God has redeemed the sojourner. He's redeemed uh, the outcast. He has redeemed those who have ran so far from him. He has redeemed those who have lost track of him and forgotten about him. He is redeeming those people. And again, in Luke chapter 2, verse 30, it says, So that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is a beautiful statement from our Lord Christ 
And we can see it right here in this picture with this Moabite woman as she is going to be redeemed into the story of God and become a part of something way bigger than herself. And the great thing is, is that as Boaz reacts as the kingsman redeemer, he, in a sense, is also a part of the redeeming work that he needs because he needs just as much as faith as anyone else. So Boaz needs this to take place so that he can, too, be redeemed. Again, for pushing forward and foreshadowing Christ, who doesn't need the redemption but redeems, right? So where is God at work? We see in the text, we see God at work in his law. He's, he's good. These are not Boaz's ideas. These are God's ideas that he's enacting through his people. So that he can say, wow, he's good, he's gracious, he's kind, he's merciful, you remember when Jesus was speaking in, in, in Matthew uh, chapter 5, he says, let them see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. The works that we do point people to Jesus. When we enact these works, we're saying, look how wonderful and beautiful and gracious and kind and merciful and generous Jesus is. And when we don't do that, we say, we need faith because we don't have salvation. We can't do it on our own, Right? And so again, the law is only to reflect the nature of God and our need for salvation. We cannot get salvation through our works. We get it through faith. But when we enact those, those, those laws and those commands, people get to see the goodness and the kindness of Jesus. See, that's why people love Jesus so much. Like if you think about it, you're like, well, Jesus, he did a lot of great things. Right? When he was on earth, he did all these. It just, just even on a secular level. You know, Jesus, all he was doing was following the commands. That's all he did. He says, I have not, I'm not taking one note off of this. I'm going to do it perfectly. And when we see Jesus walking, his kindness to the poor, his love for the sojourner, his love for the outcast, his love for his people, all he was doing was following the law perfectly. That's a beautiful picture. And so we get to see it in the text. Where is God at work? He's in his work, in his law. And the more and more we see that, the more beauty we get. Which is, again, when we go back to the Old Testament, where is God? Where is God? Is God kind? Is God merciful? No, he's only kind in the New Testament. He's only good in the New Testament. He's really evil. He's really merciless in the Old Testament. Not, not here. He's kind to the sojourner. He loves those that are outcasts. So where is it at? In his law. The second thing, again, is in his redemption. Remember, this is a time where Israel did not want a king, they didn't have a king, and they lived as if there was no king. But to the listeners and the readers, we see that there's always have been a king. See, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, there's a moment where Samuel is talking, he's saying they want a king, and God says, they already have one, it's me. But they have forgotten that they had a king. So though there wasn't a physical king, God was their king. They had forgotten about that. And when we forget about that, we begin to enact these things and bring, again, things like ruin, which is why we need salvation, because our tendency is to wander. It's one of my favorite uh, songs in, um, in history, is prone to wander, uh, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the, Lord, uh, the God I love, right? This is Israel's plight, this was our plight, which is why we needed a redeemer, needed a redeemer, and these people needed to make it so that we could have David, so that we could see Jesus come through the line of David. So even though Ruth and Naomi and Boaz did not see or hear it fully revealed to them, we have Obed and Jesse and David and Solomon all the way to Jesus. 
and Jesus is our redemption. And he's been given all authority. And he's come to redeem us. It's one of the things I love about John chapter three. He says, I didn't come to condemn, I came actually to save. Because the world is condemned already. That's what he says. The world is already condemned. Jesus wasn't coming to condemn the world. He was coming to save it, to redeem it, because it's already condemned. So that pressure, that weight, that unpeace with God is real. The tension is real. And so here comes Jesus piercing through and says, I've come to save you. I've come to redeem you. And again, just like this story, we see that there was a need, a need for rest in verse one. Naomi said, you need rest, Ruth. And God gives us rest. We see at the end again this waiting, this waiting for the Redeemer to come back to settle all accounts for them. And is that not for us? Are we not waiting for our king to return, giving us everything that we need for life and godliness until he comes? So some of the questions that I ask myself and I'd love to ask you is, do we live like there is no king over us? At times, I do. At times, I get up, and if I'm not preaching the gospel to myself, I will go find good news somewhere. I will go find a king somewhere to satisfy my need, and if that's me, then I'll, then I'll do that. And so I need this story. I need to see how this puzzle piece reaches across all of history so that I could see God is the one that is good, he's just, and he has all authority, and I need to surrender to him, because if I don't, I'm going to go surrender to something else today. I'm going to go find my peace somewhere, and I'm going, to be, I'm going to live as if there is no king. So God is at work in our lives, even today, in our marriages, in our kids, in our schools, in our churches, for his glory and our good. We can look at the future, we can look at what's happening, and we can say, where is God at work? I could tell you. He's at work in his law, and he's at work in his word, and he's at work in redemption. That's what he's doing. That's what he is doing. And so, let us live as if he was coming back. Let us live as if our king is coming back for us, and that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. So if you can hear his voice today in the text, we can stop seeking for rest in verse 1. We don't have to look for rest anymore, because we've been given it to him. And we wait in verse 18. We wait for God to come. And part of that, what that actually looks like to wait is not just to just sit around and be lazy. It means to repent of a life of autonomy. That I can do life without God. That I can make decisions without God. That I can make relationships without God. I can decide how these things work out in my life. I need no king. I will do what's right in my own eyes. We need to repent of the desire for autonomy Reject the age of the judges and see that God is faithful and his hand is at work and that that work includes you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.